the optimal life. Yeah, so what year did you go to Afghanistan? Okay, so I went to Afghanistan twice. Um, first time I went in 2008, and I was there for about four and a half months. And then I came home, and I tried to restart my architecture business, and it just still was part of the recession. And so then I went back uh, after that in about 2010, and I was there for four and a half years. Why did you go out there initially? Well, initially it was um, uh, kind of the feast or famine. I had my own architecture business here in Portland for over 30 years, uh, designing like over 700 and some homes and uh, some hotels and things like that. And usually had around anywhere from five to 10 employees working for me at the time. And we hit the recession in 2008. And um, I always kid people that uh, when your neighbor's out of work, it's a recession. When you're out of work, it's a depression. And at that time, I was in my uh, late 50s. And uh, we thought, my wife and I thought we could work our way through it. Uh, I refinanced my house to be able to make payroll. And uh, it just kept going and going. And finally, it came to the point where I had to lay everybody off. And that was a gut-wrenching experience since one of them was my son. And I started going around looking for work everywhere I would go. I mean, I went to Costco. I went to Home Depot. I went to everywhere. And I live out here in the Portland, uh, Oregon area. And um, when I went to Costco to, for a new store, it opened up. They said, we got 80 positions and there's 4,000 people that apply. And so I just get desperate. My wife was a stay-at-home mom. I have three sons. And so uh, we were just looking around. And through a coincidence that my son was at the U.S. Naval Academy at the time, uh, they introduced us to a contractor who was doing work in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I thought, oh, I can do stuff remotely. You know, um, you know, send them the drawings, that type of stuff. So we flew back east and met with them. And the first thing he said to me was, um, I don't need any more architecture engineers. I got plenty of those by me, what's called a country manager. And I had no clue what that was. I'd never been in the military. And I said, okay, what do I do? And, and he says, well, first of all, I got to ask, is that your wife standing right there? And he goes, yeah. And I go, yeah. And he says, just a minute. He walked over and says, do you have any problems with your husband going to Afghanistan? And my wife turns around, how do you miss a beat? And goes, yeah, sure. No, he, he go right ahead. <laughs> so uh, we've been married 40, I think, 40 years at the time. So uh, I guess she was pretty secure in the relationship. So um, make a long story short, I ended up uh, signing on with them. And with $300 in my pocket, a one-way ticket to, uh, uh, first of all, Baghdad, that's where their headquarters were, and um, no contract signed, nothing uh, left by myself on the journey that uh, was uh, unbelievable, uh, that I never could have planned out uh, any other way. Where, so you, you land in Afghanistan, you say goodbye to your family. Right. This is not like you're 21 years old. You've got a full-blown family. You've got grown right. kids. Right. You've got a wife of 40 years, and you say right. goodbye in your late 50s uh, to go start a new life, or at least for a period of time, in a war-torn country. Right. And just to kind of regress a little bit, uh, during the Vietnam War, my number was uh, 72 in the draft. And we had the draft going there. I happened to be going to college at the time at the University of Oregon. And they said, well, we'll just give you a student deferment. And when you get out of college and you'll go to Vietnam. Well, when all my buddies uh, come back, some didn't uh, from Vietnam, they said, hey, put this off as long as you can. It, it's not a good deal over there. So I thought, OK. So I went to the selective service once I graduated. And they said, hey, we're thinking about going volunteer. Um, you know, we'll call you if we need you. So I never did do any military service. So I always kind of felt a little bad about that. Um, all three of my sons have served in the military. 
one in the Coast Guard, one in the Navy, and, and one in the still is in the Army. And so when this opportunity came up, I thought, well, okay, this kind of way to help back with my country. And when I went and told my mom and dad, my mom cried and said, you avoided going to Vietnam, and now you're volunteering to go to Afghanistan. I said, hey, I need the job. And when I got over there, uh, first thing was a shock to me was what we call gray beards, kind of like what I have now. I'm 72 years old. So um, were all these people over there that were in the same boat I was. And they were all elderly women and men who had been laid off from NASA as electricians, plumbers, uh, you name it, construction managers, concrete workers, everybody just looking for a way to make a living during this uh, tough time in America. So you were employed by who at that point? So how I worked over there, it gets a little complicated, but the first time I was over there, I was employed by a contractor uh, who would seek out to get contracts from the government to build things, um, roads, camps, um, uh, schools, things like that. The second time, just to kind of differentiate from that, I actually worked for another contracting company or several contracting companies that oversaw the construction of these projects. Some of them were done by the Army Corps of Engineers. Some were done by uh, local uh, crafts and tradesmen. Some were done by uh, foreign countries, but it was all U.S. money. So they had to have somebody trying to keep an eye on and overseeing what was going on with the, the dollars and the projects actually got built. I just am trying to put myself in your shoes, though, back to what we were saying. Right. You get over there, you land in this war-torn desert again i, I know it's the all desert right. it's not all desert but you land into the in this in this part of the country it's in the middle right. east uh you clearly don't look like you belong right. there right your family's back at home that you've had for all these years right when you that first night where do they have you stay that first night when you go to bed okay um well let, let me back up just a little bit for that so the first time i went to afghanistan i lived in a house uh, outside Kabul, uh, the capital, I thought I was going to be on a military base. And so I lived in this house with two Christian Lebanese as my bodyguards. I mean, you couldn't make this up, Nate. It was, it's like right out of a movie. And the characters that I, uh, that I met in this, uh, this opportunity was unbelievable. But so I met the people at the airport, uh, my bodyguards, I had bodyguards all the time, these two Christian uh, Lebanese. Uh, before that, when I was in Baghdad, just to regress just a little bit, I was there for like a, a month or so of training, uh, get my you know idea of how things worked, how things would go on. Even though the uh, president of the company told me, and when I asked him what my job description was, he says, uh, you'll just figure it out when you get there. And it was just one unassurance after another. So when I first got at the airport in, in Baghdad, uh, I was instantly pulled aside, away from at least the group that was on the plane, and um, they told me my visa was no good. Well, they shook me down for $150, took half what I got. But when I got finally out of the uh, area, there was a sign there. It said, you know, Mr. Walton on it. And uh, I was relieved. And then the guys hand me this bulletproof vest, which I'd never had any idea how to put on. And to make a long story short, it was uh, they put me in a car and just started driving down the, the highway all through Baghdad and that area, just like leapfrogging through traffic and uh, uh, Rich, I got, Rich, I have to stop you. I, yeah. I have to stop you. This is yeah. this is fascinating. Yeah. You, you land in Afghanistan. Right. You're almost 60 years old. Right. 
you're this is a, a this is you should be like getting ready for retirement in five six years <laughs> you land in afghanistan with a right. three hundred dollars to your name the first thing they right. do is they shake you down and now your net worth has has decreased by 50 percent in <laughs> right. a very short period of time yeah and then you get thrown into a vehicle with a bulletproof vest driving to right. god knows where Right. And you've got, I mean, what is going through your head? I mean, did you, were you thinking to yourself, like, what is this, what is happening to my life? Were you, were you, did you have suicidal thoughts? Did you ever, I mean, where were you at emotionally? What what was going on? Yeah. First of all, I've always been raised, you know, if you you don't work, you don't eat and and that type of thing. But, but when I was over there, yeah, I was, I was nervous. I was scared. I had no idea. You know, I, I've been to, you know, Canada a couple of times, you know, and I've been to Mexico once, twice, you know, but it was, you know, all resorty type stuff. So that, that's been my extent. But wh- over there, it was like, uh, I was just scared to death, you know, uh, the whole time. And um, then when you got these two guys right next to you that are from a different country, and they told me they're bodyguards. And uh, I used to always kid them about, you know, oh, do I need to worry about getting sick from eating the food? And they laugh and say, oh, no, Mr. Rich, you just need to worry about lead poisoning. And I go, lead poisoning? Bad water? And they go, no, bullets. <laughs> and lead so poisoning. I, I think it was just my head was just spinning so much. And when, even at the airport, I was met by an Afghan general. And um, <laughs> and who was a former warlord. I mean, you, I, I like I said, that's why I wrote this book. I mean, it was it's just uh, an average American going into a war zone that has no clue. A deer in headlights, Nate, is the best way I could put it. And just hoping that I survive to see the next day. When you get there, do you have an immediate sense of regret? Like, what the hell did I do? Oh, yeah. I had that at the uh, uh, um, Atlanta, Georgia airport before I even got to Dubai. When I was flying over, I called my wife and I said, what are we doing? I mean, this is insane. I have no idea what I'm doing, uh, what's going on. And she just said, well, if you don't like it, come back. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. So I was very fortunate to have a, a supportive wife. Um, and um, so. So so you're there in this first stint that we're talking about, yeah. you're only there for a few months, you said, correct? Right, right. Yeah. Okay, and then so in that few months you were working, you were you were doing roads, you were doing physical labor. Right. Um, yeah. Were you working with child, children yet, or was that the second time? Uh, I did. I didn't really work with that. The second time I worked with more with the schools and the children. But what we did is um, every Friday, Friday's like their Sunday in America, I guess. The bakes, you know, where it's, it's their holy day, and they go to mosque uh, on those days. Um, we had street kids where a lot of orphans, a lot of orphans in the streets over there. And so we'd open up our gates on our little house that we had and we'd serve them a meal there so that they could eat. So I did have the local kids come in where we could serve them, you know, something to eat and something to drink along those lines. Um, but most of my stuff was trying to uh, get contracts to do construction. And one of my favorite stories was um, – so I'm, I'm an American, right, Nate? And I'm sitting in the office and my bodyguards come in and say, hey, we have to go out to Bagram. Maybe some of your listeners have heard of Bagram Air Force Base. And that's about a two and a half hour drive from where I, we lived uh, in this house. And I said, okay, let's let's go Wednesday, right? Just like any other businessman, when I was a businessman in Portland, I, I would just make it, you know, okay, let's do it. And so they go, okay, Wednesday it is. Tuesday on the road that we were traveling up to Bagram, a car bomb went off and blew up the car and killed five people. Mm. Wednesday we drive out, we drive by what is left of this car uh, on the way to Bob Road. And I go, that was a little unnerving, right? 
And so we get there, we have the meeting, we come back, and we're just driving like 100 miles an hour. And I go, why are we driving so fast? And he said, well, because th hopefully that if when they set off the car bombs, that, you know, it's behind us, not in front of us or underneath us. And I went, wow. And I said, what about all these children and people on the side of the road begging? He says, I, can I give them some water? And he said, no, you can't give them any water because they might not even know that they're sitting on a bomb because somebody's told them to go sit there. And so as soon as you stop, boom, bomb, you're gone. So, so they well, use they use the children, women and children as pawns. To oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. And so then the next day, my bodyguards come to me and say, Mr. Rich, you picked a very good day. Uh, the people were blown up on the road again today, Thursday. And then it dawned on me that any decision that I made could affect somebody's life. Let me ask yeah. you, Rich. Let me just yeah. like, interject again. What, yeah. is, what is what are these people? What are these radicals? trying to achieve when they're attacking random civilians right what is the conflict out there centered around well it, it gets a little complicated Nate, but but basically everybody's heard of the taliban and those are basically afghans right well you got to remember there's a lot of other terrorists over there that are not afghans they are from chesnia saudi arabia uh, yemen um you know a lot of these other countries that are there to fight the holy jihad and so these children and women are maybe people that they feel aren't towing the line enough. They aren't uh, fundamental uh, Muslims enough. So they are just a casualty to them, okay, to to a means to an ends on something like that. Um, the Taliban could be um, somebody from a different tribe. It's very tribal over there. It's hard to explain, but it's basically kind of like if you look in the 1800s, maybe in America with the Native Americans and stuff like that. Um, you know, one tribe would uh, attack and kill and kidnap people from another tribe. And so you have that issue to deal with, too. So you have that kind of going on over there. So Let me ask you a very ignorant yeah. question. I, yeah. I, I don't mean to cut you off. I, no, I no, 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 keep going. There's, there's so many different ways we can go. And, and this right. is, it's hard to wrap your head around when you're in the cozy comfort of your, our homes here in the United States. Right. And we're sitting here and we're complaining about the, the Los Angeles Lakers losing a playoff game or a referee not making a call, or uh, getting stuck in traffic, we right. have it. We, we don't have perspective. So let me ask you a very ignorant question. Right. How does somebody in the Taliban know that somebody else either is or is not also in the Taliban in order to attack? Um, just because of you know they have their different um, groups that they're at um you can kind of pretty much well tell they go in the villages and they'll type uh remember there's several different languages and stuff out there also but it's it's pretty uh open um knowledge of, of who's who over there um i mean i don't know how to explain it any better than that i mean the, the only reason that i was able to maybe travel around a little bit like you mentioned earlier because of my complexity i'm from Nordic, uh, you know, uh, heritage. My my grandfather was an immigrant from Sweden, um, and I have the blue hair. I mean, blue eyes and you know, light brown hair. Well, there's actually a tribe in northern Afghanistan called the Nuristanis, and they look exactly like me. And if you go to my book, you'll see pictures of us standing right next to each other. We look exactly alike, and it's because they are descendants of Alexander the Great, and they have lived there for you know hundreds and hundreds of years. And um, so when I would drive around, sometimes they'd put me in the local clothes of the Nuristani and they would say I was a Nuristani businessman. I just didn't talk mm. um, along those lines. So that kind of gets over the hurdle a little bit of, of not being maybe as dark complected and dark black hair as people have, you know, maybe think that Afghans would be. So they all come 
you know, in different, different races and colors and shades. So, um, uh, it, it was a little easier than you thought to kind of get around as long as I was traveling with locals. You mentioned your book. It's called One Brick at a Time, Winning the Hearts and Minds of the Afghan People. What exactly is the book about? Well, basically, when I came back, everybody was asking about, you know, what did you do? What went on? How did you live? How scared were you? Uh, you know, what was your involvement with the military? Uh, all those type of things. So uh, somebody said, well, why don't you write a book? And I thought, yeah, yeah, how hard can that be? Well, it was really hard. It took me four years. But uh, anyway, I just started writing down all my stories and everything, just trying to relate to people that I had no agenda. Uh, I was just a civilian um, businessman going over there just trying to do a job and eventually it, it morphed into more than I ever would anticipated with doing schools for girls and boys out in the villages and those type of things. I worked with the Navy SEALs. I worked with special forces um, doing things. People don't think about when those different outfits go to different parts in the, of the country and stuff, who builds where they live, you know? And so a lot of times uh, in my book, it goes in more detail how I was picked up by helicopters, dropped off at sites, figure out what we had to build, you know, mostly little tiny buildings and shacks, but still it was covered from the elements and um, bring the materials up there and work with the local people on how to do it. Of course, I don't speak the local language. They don't speak English. So it got to be really interesting. Plus 80% of the people in Afghanistan cannot read or write. Wow. So um, that creates a whole nother scenario of how do you work with somebody? And I was just tickled pink working with these people and I uh, became really endeared to them. Um, I had no doubt that many of them would protect me with their lives. And I did have a bounty, as did other contractors over there, like $500 uh, for building girls' schools. So you learned a lot about the children. I believe yes. you talk about how important the littlest things to them are, just the, just handing them a pencil. Tell right. us a little bit about that story. So, so when I first started going into the villages, I'd have pencils, of course, stuck in my depending on if I was wearing civilian clothes or military clothes, because I, I went both ways. If I traveled with the U.S. military, I had to wear military clothes. If I traveled uh, other ways, I wore civilian clothes. But um, I'd have these pencils, and, and the children would see these things, and I always a lot of times had interpreters with me sometimes, and, and they all wanted the pencil, the pencil, the pencil. And what was explained to me after a while was that because they cannot read and write, and the pencil almost became like a Harry Potter kind of wand, magic wand, and they just knew that this instrument could actually write things and, and communicate with things. And so um, no matter where I went, there was like, I wouldn't say hundreds, but there would say like 50, 30, 40 kids all around me, surrounding me all the time. And that became a real problem for my military detail because they were afraid that somebody would walk up to me and set off a bomb or somebody, there have been instances where, you know, a teenager would walk up and stab somebody, you know, with a knife. Um, so there was that balance that they had to do a lot of times with, you know, how much they let me get involved. Well, when I was out on the bases or outside the bases on my own, th that wasn't the issue because I was on my own. So they would just, you know, flock around me and, and uh, I'd always carry like a bunch of pencils and stuff to give to them. But um, I they think thought, some of the they thought you were the magic man with the pencils. They did. And yeah. not only that, the elders thought I was like uh, unbelievable because of my age. The average life expectancy over this 45. Oh, so when wow. they find out that I'm 60 years old and look the way I look, um, they were just like shocked, 
you know about well hey you, you know, still you look you look damn young i'll give you that you don't look like <laughs> your age you look maybe about 10 15 years younger so you're doing okay, something right there the, the, yeah, the something right. was right there you stayed away from the radiate what do they call the, the uh, bullets uh lead oh, poisoning you stayed away from yeah, the lead poisoning yeah but they do have the radiated bullets too that i was around because you're riding on helicopters and they're there but yeah yeah that's so there. so i, I want to understand you you came back for a period of time after the first stint was four or right. five months you came back and then would you say 2010 you go back for like four year stint yeah yeah now were you by yourself or did your wife ever come no no she can't go to afghanistan but she what she could do is she would go to dubai um and so she'd fly there uh which is like a 20 hour 18 20 hour flight um, and then I would fly from Afghanistan to Dubai, which is about two and a half hours. Okay. So I would okay. meet her there every six months or something like wow. that uh, wow. for for a for a week. Um, okay, so you then, guys still saw each other periodically, not very yeah. much, but but periodically yeah. Yeah. Uh, throughout yeah. those four years. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're back now in this four year stint. When you're looking around, like when you walk the streets. What is the feeling like? Is it is it is it again? This is ignorance. This is this is Hollywood. Yeah. This is Hollywood. I'm picturing the little markets, very crowded, oh. uh, uh, people walking around. Uh, you, you know, women covered from head to toe, of course, and potential extremists lurking in the markets, and and you never knowing when the next bomb's going to go off. Is that a fair assessment, or am I crazy? No, that's a fair assessment. Uh, some places were a little bit that were a little bit more remote. The, the streets maybe not be crowded. Um, you know, there'd be people on them, but it wouldn't be like you know. As you get towards the bigger cities uh, or or towns or villages, then of course you get a bigger population. You get more people crowded and that type of thing. The streets are dirty. Everything's brown. I, I don't know how to explain it to you. Even the dogs are brown. I mean, everything is brown um, because of the devastation of all the wars. Uh, they used to have forests, they told me. They used to have gardens. They used to have a lot of things there, but no more. It's do all... the Afghan people generally like Americans? Um, they do. They generally like Americans, um, especially at the beginning uh, when we just started, you know, going over there. Um, they liked Americans. Um, but there's, that's kind of hard to generalize because um, – you know, you got good Americans, bad Americans. You got good soldiers, bad soldiers, you know, just like anything else. So you got people that treated them really nice. And then I was around where people would go over there and work and they treated the people horrible. You know, they're mm -hmm. just there for, especially the ones that work for the government. I'm sorry to say this, but, you know, like with the State Department, things like that, they're not my best. Um, <laughs> don't give me on that. So, um, but they're there for promotion, you know, to check a box off on my resume, move on to Switzerland or some other nicer assignment or that type of thing. So um, I always said that, you know, we were there. Well, originally when I was there, we were 15 years there, uh, repeating a year uh, over and over again. Right. So back to the kids, too. I'm curious. Yeah. When you're looking these kids in the eyes, these beautiful, innocent children. Right. They're looking at you. You're the magic wand with the pencils. and Right. The simplest things in life bring them joy and happiness. And you're saying, wow, I mean, this is my purpose. This is my mission to help these kids watch them grow. Does it ever occur to you, though, while you're staring at some of them going, some of these kids may end up being radicalized as they get oh, older? For sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That, that what, what, always, was that, what was that kind of feeling like for you? It, it was gut-wrenching. I mean, you know, you try to say, okay, you know, I'm the face of America. I try to put my best foot forward. 
Um, a lot of bases there I was on, the U.S. Americans couldn't leave the base. People always say, well, how'd you do it, Rich? I said, well, I'm a civilian. You can just walk off. And they go, you just walk off? And I go, yeah. And and I would be out there working with the locals out there, knowing that at any point in time I could be kidnapped, killed, or whatever. But uh, it was just worth it to me. And it was. I just figured, you know what? Uh, at my age, I want to give something back and do something. And as I got more and more involved with the, the locals um, and the interpreters. Uh, I had one interpreter lady one time, Pashtun's one of the languages. She says, Pashtun looks good on your face as I was trying to talk to, you know, the children and the people and the kids and stuff like that, that they were there. Um, and I try to do different things. Like I take their pictures with my, with my camera. And then the next time I come back to the villages, I'd hand them the pictures that I, that I give, you know, gave them and, uh, of them and stuff like that. Wow. Um, wow. Um, yeah. And so, it, it, I'd see these kids walk to school, you know, miles and miles and miles with sandals, just trying to learn. And um, especially with the girls, you know, right now, unfortunately, we're back to the, I'm sure the same policy is that no girls over the age of eight year olds can be educated. So the law in Afghanistan is that if you're north of eight years old and you're a, a female, you're not allowed to go to school? No, in most places, I'm sure that's the way it was when they were in power. I'm sure that's the way it is right now, again, now that they're back in power. Uh, wow, that's wild. Yeah. Tell us, give us a story, because you were there for four and a half years in total. Right. What was the scariest moment that you encountered? Um, okay, I'd, I'd like to give you a humanitarian one, too, but I'll give you the, the scariest one. The humanitarian uh, one? Nobody cares about that nice stuff. Come on. Oh, no, you'll, wanna... like, you'll like, you'll like this story. Right. Well, how about you give us, give us both? I'm, I'm totally Okay, joking. let me give you this one. So uh, this goes back to being a naive American, right? So I lived in this house, and I had a lady that would walk to, to uh, in her burqa every day to my, to my house to clean it, okay? And so being the naive American, I went to a military base and I bought one of those brushes that you clean a toilet with. You familiar with those, Nate? You know, these swirl around the bowl. Right. So I had my interpreter tell her this is the brush to clean the toilet. Well, I didn't realize that she would take that because she grew, she lived in a mud hut with no electricity, no indoor plumbing, nothing there as a universal tool. So one day I was wondering why I was always sick. So I looked in, in there and here was her cleaning the toilet, right? With that. Without washing it off or anything, she went over and she cleaned the mirror. All right? Without washing it off, she went over and pulled my toothbrush out of the cup and cleaned the cup and my toothbrush. And so wow. I couldn't get mad at her because she was just doing what she thought, you know, they should do. So, right. um, and, and, and so that was kind of my humanitarian. Probably two kind of scary ones. Um, one was where I was on a base and it was hit with a, um, a suicide bomber and it actually, um, killed some of the military, the U.S. soldiers that on other missions protected me. And so my job was to go out. I, I volunteered to do it so that a lot of the U.S. American soldiers wouldn't have to maybe endure this kind of thing. And I went out and had to do what they call recovery and had to recover all the um, dead people and that type of thing on that. And, of course, then you're always worried about secondary attacks. I'm more of a lighter. Was that the first time in your life that you ever had to do something like that? Something like that. That wasn't the first time that I was kind of semi blown up, but, um, but that was uh, the first time I, in your life that you had to go out and literally mop up these dead bodies at, uh, to this terrorist. That was the first time I had to do had to do that. That was remains detail. Um, 
on a lighter what was note, that feeling I'll, like rich what was that um was that? it was got it was got well first i didn't know if i if i would would not throw up okay um with that because i had never been that um fortunately or unfortunately uh i grew up uh you know hunting and fishing in the northwest um that type of thing my dad was a meat cutter and a butcher so i mean uh, not to get too much detail but you know so i was kind of used to that kind of stuff but i still didn't know how i'd react to it right and so um, this might be kind of a little hard for some of your listeners, but basically I had to put in my mind when I was looking down at the different body parts and things like that, that uh, it's no different than um, elk hunting, you know, no different than so elk hunting. I had mm-hmm. to try to desensitize myself with, with, with that type of situation. That's interesting. That's interesting. Did, did that desensitization, did that, when you desensitize yourself, did that work? Or, it, it worked to a point. Um, about a week or two weeks later, I was uh, at a meeting on one of the bigger bases down in Kandahar. I had to go in for a meeting, and um, I had some people ask me about that, and I still probably was shocked, um, you know, not probably cl- thinking a clear head. And I had a bunch of people say, well, what was it like? And I said, it was like a slaughterhouse on fire. And then I saw the shock on their face because I worked around slaughterhouses and things like, and all the hair and that kind of stuff being burnt and cooked. I thought, wow, um, I probably shouldn't say that anymore, you know? And so uh, once out there, you can't pull it back. Just like now I can't pull it back. But that was the feeling I got is just as a, a civilian, you know, put in that kind of situation, no training, no whatever you want to call it can prepare you for those kind of uh, horrors. Mm, that's terrible. What was the other one that you experienced? Okay, the first time I was, <laughs> I'd only been in Afghanistan for a week, okay? And I met this Afghan general, uh, <laughs> I, I love him, but he was uh, basically um, a former warlord. Uh, you know, they all put on different hats to make money from America. And so he just got through telling me how safe I was going to be in my little house, how he's going to post soldiers down the street and have helicopters in the sky and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm just naive, you know, I've been a week. Okay, all of a sudden, this car bomb goes off on the other side of our, our, our little wall on our property. And all I remember is this huge heat wave coming at me and watching the ground kind of roll like an earthquake uh, knocked me over. I looked up in the air and saw what looked like a small atomic bomb going off. It blew all the windows in my house inward, and then with the recurring shockwave, like you'd see in one of those atomic bomb movies, it sucked the doors off the front of my house into the yard. Mm. And it was this big, huge, burly guy, probably 250, 260, uh, foot two, uh, picks me up. He laughs, and he goes, what, Mr. Rich? We're still alive, aren't we? <laughs> wow. And I realized, wow. Uh, <laughs> wow, had, that was early on. That was early yeah, on in your yeah second week. Oh and, my god! Uh, after that, I just went, "Wow, life is a whole lot different uh, meaning over here than what I'm used to in America." What do you look at life like now? You've come back from that. Um, it's been a while since you were there, but you the last seven, eight years of your life. Do you look at life differently being back here now? Oh yeah, uh, totally, totally. I came back. Uh, like I'm sure, you know, a lot of the military and different people, I came back kind of angry and upset um, with, you know, way things were being run over there and things were going on, not to blame any people on the ground, but, you know, just politics type of thing. Um, uh, I, I didn't handle traffic very well because traffic in, in my part of the world in Portland, Oregon, they're like tripled or quadrupled. And so 
uh, every once in a while, I probably shouldn't say this, but I, what the heck? I'd be driving down the street and I start swearing at somebody like that. And my wife says, I, sh I should make some little signs so I can hold those up with little platters so that they know what you're saying. <laughs> That's funny. Well, there's yeah. no police to call anymore in Portland, right? They defunded the whole police department. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'll just plain out say it. You know, I went from a third world country and came back to a third world country. <laughs> like that. Okay. There you All go. Right. All right. God, man, that's that's wild. What, before we finish it off, what was your yeah. take about that had to be devastating last year when you saw us pull out of Afghanistan? Listen, right. we were going to have to pull out at some point. Sure. But the way that we pulled out and you saw those Afghani people trying to jump onto these United Air, United States aircraft planes that are taking away and you see these these desperate people trying to hold on. For dear life, those pictures, those images, how did that make you feel? Uh, I was I was sick in my stomach. Um, my wife said she'd never seen me yell and scream at the TV so much. Now, I'm not saying I had all the solutions, but it, it hit home really hard because I worked on Bagram. Okay, I knew what was there. That base was impenetrable to, to a point. All right, the Russians had it before we had it, and we made it even more. That thing was totally not, we didn't do it. But the Russians had mined that thing all the way around that thing. So you just weren't going to do no sneak attack on that place, okay? And just its location and everything that was available. It didn't make sense to people. I tell people, they said, what's a, what's, what are you so upset about? I said, well, that place was like a base, all right? Where they tried to evacuate out, it would be like driving out to the Portland airport, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like what you had going on there. Um, and just one thing after another, uh, I don't know how anybody named – that was there like me, and I'm not certainly not military, but just from what I saw, could have done that and, and went along with some of the things that they said and didn't say. Um, I knew the worst of the worst of people were in that Bagram prison. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I worked on that. Um, so I knew when they got out, it was just going to be, you know, insane. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, just to leave all those people behind, we finally got one of my last interpreters out. I mean, I had nothing to do with it, but he emailed and let me know that he, him and his wife finally got out, but the French had to get him out. You know, that was another kind of kick in the stomach to me that why didn't we get our own people out? Um, so, and and I, as I understand, there's still some over there, but, you know, everybody say, well, just make your way to Bach, just make your way to Kabul. No, it's not like that. You got like three roads in the whole country that, you know, go from one place to the next. And some of these people are in other cities and there's just no way they can physically get there, you know? Mm -hmm even yeah. if there wasn't a, a war. So, yeah. Terrible. Well, bad policies do have consequences, and we've, right. seen, that, we've seen that firsthand. Uh, we mentioned your book, One Brick at a Time. We will link that in the show notes. Anywhere else you want folks to go, uh, website, social media, et cetera. Sure, sure. Yeah, so you can go to, uh, you know, my website is www.onebrickatatimepress.com, and that has my... Uh, uh, blogs on there has uh, articles I've written, and of course, then has uh, a link to the different uh, podcasts that I've been on. Beautiful, and we'll make sure we link that up in the show notes. Uh, Rich, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for the insight, and best wishes to you. Oh, thank you for having me, Nate. I really appreciate it. <laughs>